Mike Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Amy Shira Title will join us to discuss fighting for space. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Show. Well, like so many areas in science and technology, the history of spaceflight oftentimes ignores the important contribution of women to its development. Well, joining us today to discuss some of this fascinating history is Ms. Amy Shira Title. Ms. Title is a spaceflight historian, author, and public speaker who, much like her subjects, is one of the few academically trained young women in her field. She has contributed to many venues, including the BBC and Time magazine online, and also maintains her blog Vintage Space and its companion YouTube channel. She has penned the new book Fighting for Space, Two Pilots and Their Historic Battle for Female Spaceflight, and joins us today to discuss this very fascinating issue. And Ms. Title, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. Well, certainly our pleasure. Certainly a fascinating book you've written here, Fighting for Space, in which you talk about two very important individuals in the history of flight and space flight. Curious how you became interested in their stories. Well, the story of the younger of the two, Jerry Cobb, and her fight to take on NASA for her transfer of mission in space in the 60s, is a pretty common story. It kind of makes the rounds a lot. I mean, it's a great one. It's got a great feminist angle. But you know, something about it never really felt right to me. It's usually told with a distinct lack of context, which as an historian really bothers me. The NASA angle is missing. And when I started reading into it before I started writing the book and thinking maybe there's a story here that's got more of the context in, I realized that the villain in Jackie Cochran, who's the other major figure in this book, her angle doesn't make sense either. Like, why is she so evil and unexplored? So when I started looking into her, I realized that she's the most fascinating woman that I've never heard of. And now I'm obsessed with her. And that this story is actually her story because she knew everybody involved. And nothing in this story happens without her involvement because she was so integral to everything. So that's kind of how the story developed, how I found both these women as the kind of co-leads, as it were, and, and got into the story that way. Working backwards historically, in a way. A little bit. I mean, you always, when you write a book like this, you can start at a point, but you never know what you're going to come up with in researching that's going to kind of switch your angle a different way or, you know, what have you. So it was, you know, starting starting at like the meat of the story and kind of going out from there, realized that I actually wanted to tell a, diff- a totally different way of looking at the story. So it was a lot of fun, though. Jackie Cochran, really a, an amazing individual. For those of us who haven't heard her story, uh, tell us a little bit about her. Yeah, she's awesome. Jackie was born into abject poverty in Florida in 1906. And her way out of that was actually in the beauty industry. So she was adept at doing hair and had dreams of launching her own cosmetics company, which she did. But then she actually as a way to sell cosmetics far and wide during the Depression. She got her pilot's license in 17 days, which is really fast. And that was when she was 26 in 1932. And by the end of the decade, she'd won all the major aviation awards you can get. 
including the Harmon Trophy and the Collier Trophy. She was friends with presidents. She was the first solo woman to win the Bendix Transcontinental Air Race. She was also one of the first women ever to enter it. She was friends with people like Howard Hughes and Amelia Earhart by then. During the Second World War, she founded the Women's Air Force Service Pilots and led the first group of women to prove that women can fly just as well as men. And uh, in the 50s, she became the first woman to break the sound barrier in level flight. Chuck Yeager, another good friend on her wing, you know, flying next to her, not like literally on her wing, of course. She made an unsuccessful bid for Congress, but, you know, along the way was friends with uh, LBJ and Eisenhower and husband at the time was one of the richest men in the country. Between the two of them, they had access to almost anything her heart could desire. Incredibly amazing. And I gather she had a lot of work, as you mentioned, during the Second World War. But after that time, somewhat diminished. Well, it did and it didn't. It, women's roles as pilots definitely did because now, you know, the men were back, they had more experience and women were told to go back home and take care of their men. And this is actually where kind of Jerry Cobb, the other woman in our story, was was kind of getting into the workforce at the time. Jerry learned to fly as a teenager during the 40s. And then in her early 20s and the 50s, she was struggling against this new social order to find work as a pilot. For Jerry, it was really hard because no one wanted to take a chance on some young female pilot. For Jackie, she was able to say, well, I want to fly a jet. Well, women in America weren't able to fly jets, but she got her way into a cockpit and became the fastest woman in the world for like the 15th time. So Jackie had some advantages and some opportunities that other women just didn't have by virtue of her position and also her husband. We'll call it what it is. <laughs> mentioned she was friends with LBJ and some role in saving his life. Yeah, this is one of my favorite stories that sounds insane, but... The short version of it is when LBJ was running for Senate in 1948, he was attacked with insane kidney stones, but he refused to stop his race. And they got to the point where he couldn't walk down a hallway without vomiting and passing out. So he finally went to the hospital. And Jackie was summoned to Dallas where he was hospitalized because the people that knew her knew that when she traveled, she flew herself. She had her own plane, obviously. So she could be a very discreet method of transporting him to a hospital if need be. And it's this insane story where she's got sick, drugged up, delirious LBJ in the back of her plane with six other people on board. She's flying, and in the middle of the flight, there's just this ungodly scream, and LBJ wakes up in pain and starts freaking out. So she... Passes the controls off to her flight engineer, runs back, strips the Senate hopeful naked, starts dabbing at him with rubbing alcohol to start to bring down his fever, rolls him over to give him a shot of painkillers, at which point he vomits all over her. So she and her maid are trying to clean him up, stem the flow of vomit, also get his fever under control, wrap him up in a blanket, and then she goes back and finishes the flight, like you do. She was the first lady of the air, and then as new young pilot comes along, Jerry Cobb, what was her story? How did she come onto the scene? So Jerry's story is, is interesting because it's really like this, this interesting story of media blowing things out of proportion, which, as we know, happens a lot now. But apparently it happened just as much in 1961. So Jerry's career pilot in her own right, which is remarkable just because of how hard it was for women to be career pilots in the 50s and early 60s. She did also secure a couple of records in her own right, albeit in a different class of plane than Jackie was flying. But Jerry really kind of takes center stage in the story because in 1960, in February, she managed to take the same medical test that the Mercury astronauts took. 
I won't say how she got in there because I, I introduced some evidence in the epilogue of the book that deliberately calls her version of events into question. But the same way the media today, when someone publishes a paper saying there's new evidence for past life on Mars or for past water on Mars, sorry. And then the media is like, there's water on Mars. Well, there's no, there's no water on Mars. So when Randy Lovelace, who did the medical testing for NASA and privately tested Jerry, announces that a woman has passed the test given to the Mercury astronauts, the media just hears the word woman and astronaut in the same sentence and just runs with it. And Jerry does absolutely nothing to stop the insanity that ensues, runs with the media fervor and tries to will this program into existence. And that's where it gets really messy and really fun because Randy Lovelace, who did the testing, was also a very good friend of Jackie's. And Floyd, Jackie's husband, was not only bankrolling the clinic, he was the chairman of the board of the Lovelace Foundation. So there's nothing happening at this clinic that Floyd and Jackie don't know about. So when Jerry starts running around inflating her importance as a woman astronaut trainee, obviously Jackie's a part of that story. So it becomes really fun and it was, well, it's very complicated and messy, but like fun messy. And this is really the crux of the story is how far this went all the way to Congress to make this happen. Yeah, it did get all the way to a congressional subcommittee hearing, which is, you know, Im- impressive that Jerry even got that far. And what's really interesting about the story is typically the earlier retellings always kind of present the women as a group. So there were a bunch, about 25 women did the testing, the medical testing after Jerry. Jerry, meanwhile, did her own psychological testing that had nothing to do with anything and somehow finagled her way into simulator testing at the Navy's flight station at Pensacola. And meanwhile, all these women are doing the medical testing on their own, but Jerry's giving the impression that they are a group, that they are a program, that they are a united front. What's awesome for me in writing and researching this book is that Jackie was an epic pack rat and she kept letters that were sent to her, carbon copies that were sent to her, everything. And because she was very good friends with Eisenhower, all of her papers are in the Eisenhower library. So in trying to piece together what exactly happened with this quote-unquote program, I was actually able to let the women speak for themselves and the men involved speak for for themselves because LBJ was involved, JFK was involved, Jim Webb, the administrator at NASA, was very much involved. And all these people were writing letters and memos the same way you toss out an email today. And all of that Jackie saved. So you can, I was really able to let everyone speak for themselves and have their own voices heard in figuring out what really happened with this issue. Was NASA completely against the idea? Of, did all this fervor just put the idea of women in space further behind or did it help? I think it ultimately hurt them. I think because... Jerry was going around parading, saying that she was speaking on behalf of NASA, which forced NASA to issue statements saying that she did not speak for NASA. She was not a voice of the agency. They had a decent amount of damage control from some of the things she was putting out in the media and some things she was doing. And it got to the point where I think she just kind of annoyed the wrong people. And ultimately, that became her undoing. What's really interesting, what's really hard about doing the story is we can't take modern viewpoints into 1961, because 1961 is, of course, before the second wave of feminism, before women's liberation. It was a very different time. I mean, I have three women in this book writing or saying in transcripts of speeches, I am not a feminist. But if you look at it from a modern standpoint, of course you're a feminist. But it meant something very different back then. So we have to realize that for these women to get a women's program off the ground, much like Jackie did during the war, you have to play the game. For, for Jerry to kind of force her way and to not kind of work the system, but to 
force it to change didn't do her any favors. And it's actually interesting. And I didn't get into this in the book because it's just too far out of the narrative and out of the timeline. When NASA was looking at recruiting scientist astronauts, like a couple of years after the hearing in 1964, I believe it started looking at this group. Famously, Jack Schmidt, the lunar module pilot of Apollo 17, came from this group. It was considering women because for the first time, it didn't need pilots. It needed scientists who had an expertise that would be useful in lunar exploration. Well, it was the National Academy of Science that actually took the women as well as a bunch of men off the list. And NASA ended up with, I think, six. It was a small group. I do think that had things gone a bit differently and had they not pushed so hard for inclusion and kind of worked with NASA a little bit more, we might have seen women scientists joining the agency before 1978 when NASA did have its first women join the astronaut corps. Researching this topic, did it change your views of these women or was there anything surprising you came across going through the story? Yeah, a lot of stuff was surprising. And it's, like I said, because the earlier retellings and frequent retellings always put It's like the Jerry the martyr with Jackie the villain. I was surprised how much I understand Jackie's perspective and really respect and admire the way she went about doing everything because she knew how to work the system. She knew how to play the game and she did it beautifully and she got what she wanted. And, you know, they're both very self-interested. Let's not pretend they both wanted things for women at large. They were very self-interested. We know this. Um, But the more you read Jerry's letters, on the other hand, she becomes less sympathetic. And I tried to to write it in a very balanced way that I meet people, some people really feel for Jerry, some people really feel for Jackie. And it's really fun for me to kind of know where people land. But Jerry starts out saying, you know, this is for womankind. I want to do this for women. And by the end of it, she's just desperately saying it's my purpose in life, my God-given purpose. And her language shifts in a way that feels increasingly desperate. And you can see her falling away and wanting something that's purely for herself. It it does, you see that shift throughout the book. How do you think the story plays today with our current lens? Do you think that these sorts of struggles, I mean, they're still persisting, right? There's, yeah, there absolutely. There's a lot of, there are a lot of themes in here, a lot of things that happen to all the women, not just Jerry and Jackie, but all the other women involved that are hugely reminiscent of what's happening now. The, the story is timeless in a way because replace aviation with any other industry and you can find a woman or a group of women who are struggling against the same thing. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I, I really like that both of these women went after what they wanted so completely that I think they're inspiring in their fight and inspiring in what they accomplished for themselves. And there's a lot to be said for that. There's modern parallels, but there's also just modern, modern inspiration that I think is extremely timeless. We were just talking with Miss Amy Shearer Title. Her new book, Fighting for Space, Two Pilots and Their Historic Battle for Female Spaceflight. And Miss Title, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.